Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us on our very first podcast. My name is Brad, and I've had a fascination with true crime my entire life. And with me is my beautiful fiance, Denise. Hello, everyone. Every week, you want to give me a case to research and study, and we'll go over it in great detail. Yeah, I wanted to take a deep dive into the criminals around the world because I find them very fascinating. So we live in Prince George, British Columbia, Canada, and we are going to be following the case of the Canadian teen serial killer, aka the Country Boy Killer, also known as Cody Allen Lejabokov. I actually think it's a really good starting point to launch our podcast. Yeah, exactly. So coming from a small town of just over 74,000 people, stories like this grab your attention. It really does. I don't follow murder cases, but even I've heard about this case. So when I gave you this case to research, do you know any of the details about it? I'm embarrassed to say no. But once I got into it, I found it extremely eerie or you could say uncomfortable, that someone was living in our neck of the woods performing these serial kills. It just goes to show you that anyone could be a killer. I'm not saying by all means that your neighbor is out killing people, but what I am saying is that there are people out there that you could be walking past or waiting your turn behind them at the gas station that have killed someone. Yeah, and those are the people you don't want to piss off. No. For me, I guess it made me more cautious, you know, which is a good thing. I think everyone should be more cautious and not have blinders on when they're out in public. And you always have blinders on. I know. I was the kind of person that would walk past my mom at the store and not even notice her. Now I pay more attention. I'm not great at it, but it's a work in progress for sure. Yeah, it's funny because some days we're in the mall and her mom walks right past her. She's staring <laughs> at her and she completely ignores her. Yeah, I, I know. I'm really bad. <laughs> I said, it's a working progress. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> bringing it to my eye. Okay, so let's get on with the case here. So Cody was born on January 21st, 1990. He was known as one of Canada's youngest convicted serial killers. Mm-hmm. And that is because his trial evoked national attention. Mm-hmm. In 2014, he was convicted by the British Columbia Supreme Court for the murder of three women, as well as 15-year-old Lauren Don Leslie. Lauren Don Leslie has been listed as an official Highway of Tears victims by EPANA, RCMP's task force investigation team. And if, yeah, for those who don't know, E stands for the E division of the mm-hmm. RCMP. And PANA is the name of the Inuit goddess who cares for souls before heaven and reincarnation. Exactly. I didn't know that until I was Neither did I. It. So living in this area, most of us have heard of the Highway of Tears. But it wasn't until I started researching that I learned just how many females have went missing. Yeah, there's a lot. There's like a, what has been known is about over 80, but I mean, that's a lot of people on that stretch of highway. It is. And that stretch of highway is uh, Highway 16. That is uh, from Prince George to Prince Rupert. Yeah. It's about uh, 700 kilometers to the West Coast. Yeah, it goes all the way to uh, Prince Rupert, my hometown. And she was born there. You bet. So most of the victims included poverty, drug abuse, widespread domestic violence, a disconnection with traditional cultures and disruption of the family unit through foster care system in the Canadian Indian residential school systems. Yeah, actually, I was looking into that residential school systems. It's been in the news a lot lately because they found all those bodies under the churches and stuff like that. Did you know it's over 1,100 bodies have been found so far just I, since last spring? Oh, I know. There's a lot. It's really uh, irritating that uh, we had that kind of stuff happening in Canada. Yeah. Even when we were in school, this was happening. Yep. So uh, in the Highway of Tears, we're not going to talk about that today because we're going to talk about Cody Lejabokov, but yes. I think we're going to con- continue that one uh, later on. Yeah, it's a big case. so It's something we want to study because it's so close and it's really fascinating. Yeah, I would actually really like to get into that one. So standing at 6 foot 2 inches, 220 pounds, Cody was described by friends, family, and teachers as the popular kid. You know, the kid that loved to compete in ice hockey as well as skied and snowboarded. Basically, the boy next door. We've all gone to school with those kind of kids. I, for one, preferred the skids, though. And I was a skid. Yeah, I think you're still a skid. So, Cody definitely wasn't the kind of person who displayed any sort of violence. And that's exactly it. That goes to show that anybody could be a killer. Even the people that... Seem like they're the good guy. Exactly. Yeah. So, no, Cody wasn't exactly the golden boy, though. He did have a minor criminal record like so many other kids, but he definitely wasn't on the radar by our local police. I think uh, a lot of people have that criminal record. Yep, I do. (laughs) Even minor, you know, no one's perfect. He was raised and then graduated in 2008 in Fort St. James, which is in the northern interior of British Columbia. 
So Fort St. James is about uh, 160 kilometers northwest of Prince George, and it only has about a few thousand people there. It's a pretty small community. It is. After graduating from Fort St. James Secondary School, Cody started working as a mechanic at the Ford dealership here in Prince George. Found on road dead. Mm, I wouldn't talk so much when I'm <laughs> Ford or my Dodge, I mean, sucks. He even had good standings with his employer. At one point, he shared a house with three close female friends that he knew from Fort St. James. Apparently, they were young friends from uh, school. That's what I read up on. Okay. He spent his spare time corresponding with friends, associates, or even potential girlfriends on the Canadian social networking site Nexopia, using the handle One Country Boy. I've never heard of Nexopia. I've never used it, so I don't know much about it. All I do know is that it's equivalent to Facebook, I think. Yeah, that's. I think that's what I've seen too. Um, when I thought, when I uh, seen that whole thing about the future girlfriends, I kept thinking about the T-shirt. You know. You could be my future ex-girlfriend. Okay. <laughs> you don't remember those t-shirts? No. <laughs> oh, okay. I think uh, my son had one. So this is where he exchanged phone numbers with his last victim, 15-year-old Lauren Don Leslie. Leading up to her murder, the two became Facebook friends. First, they only spoke on the phone, but then it, they started to text each other, which finally led to coffee dates. On November 27th, 2010... So I did my research on November 27, 2010, and I'm a big movie buff. Of course. And I wanted to see what was playing in the theaters at this time, because I like to know what was going on in the world at the time of bad things happening, because we all remember like, where we were at 9-11 yeah. and stuff like that. So I like to know kind of what was happening and what I was kind of doing in these times. Mm-hmm. So I looked it up, and on November 27, 2010, there was a movie playing in the theaters, which I really, really enjoy. Okay. Can you guess what it is? Uh, I'll give you a clue. Okay. It has Hedwig the Owl. Ah, Harry Potter, of course. It's Harry Potter. And I like to know because Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 1 was in the theaters. And uh, so when... This was all going on, we were at the theater watching it. Pretty much, because those are really good movies. (laughs) They are, actually. We need to, like, do... um, What's it called? A big marathon. Yeah, we need to... Yeah, I like to do the Harry Potter marathons every Christmas. That's like our uh, Christmas traditions. Yeah. Or the Star Wars. Yeah. Always good. So getting back to the story. At 9.30 p.m. on November 27, 2010, a rookie Royal Canadian Mounted Police Officer, or as we call them, the RCMP, from Fort St. James, Constable Aaron Keller, noticed a truck burling off an old logging road heading southbound on Highway 27 near Vanderhoof and Fort St. James. And uh, yeah, Vanderhoof is in between Prince George and Fort St. James. It's kind of the... the the middle hub between us. I feel like you're a Mr. Google. Yeah, it's for people who don't know, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, few t- there's a few uh, towns involved in all this. Yeah. Constable Keller had only been on the job for just over one year. Around our area, we have a network of old logging roads. Some have been deactivated, but there's still a lot that hunters, campers, or even people who like to go four by fouring or quadding use. Yeah, we have a lot of uh, back roads around here. Like, there's a lot of, for- we live in a big forest like area yeah and these roads they're like they have the main road and then they branch off from you know to the sides so yeah there's a ton of them yeah earlier that evening the fun and mostly happy young girl 15 year old lauren don leslie who was born january 5th 1995 was hanging out with cody legibokov from her pictures i could see that she's an adorable child with long blonde hair and i could see why her father described her as an angel So, Brad, did you know that she had a dream to become a forensic pathologist one day? No, I did not. Didn't you want to do that? Uh, I was trying to get into criminology, but I ended up not going to school for it, which I really wanted to do. Uh, That's why you watch a lot of hot shows. Yep. Although she suffered from post-traumatic depression and bipolar, she had been taking medications, though, and it seemed to be working. She was, however, legally blind. One of her eyes was completely blind, and the other one only had 50% vision. This poor girl, it seemed like she was dealt a bad hand, and but yet she was making the most of it and trying to enjoy life. Up until Lauren had the misfortune of meeting Cody online, she was doing pretty good for herself. They had met briefly in a shared circle of acquaintances here in Prince George. Prince George is a small town, but uh, it's one of BC's largest cities. 
and it would make a lot of sense that they would meet up here because there's more things to do here. Uh, a lot of people from uh, surrounding cities and towns come here for shopping and uh, just to change up scenery. Yeah, they do. Hit the old Costco. Mm-hmm. On that frigid evening of November 27, 2010, when Keller seen Legibokov's 2004 black GMC Sierra pickup truck speeding erratically on a hunch, Constable Keller decided to follow this pickup truck for approximately 10 kilometers or 6 miles as it was exceeding past the speed limit of 100 kilometers or 62 miles per hour. Seems weird to me, the Canadian and States way of uh, different uh, speed limits. When you say 62 Doesn't seem like that much. No, it sounds really slow. It It sounds like, oh, well. I do 62 and a 50 every day. (laughs) (laughs) Since Keller was unsure uh, what he was going to find, he thought it was best to call for backup and wait until he was joined up with another officer since, you know, there's safety in numbers, right? Yeah, there's always better safety in numbers. Like, I don't want to pull somebody over who's coming over backwoods Especially like, in, in the middle, middle of the night, right? Yeah, like it's pitch black and like, let's pull over this erratic vehicle all by myself. I think not. Together, they would pull over the vehicle and perform a routine traffic stop. Keller believed that it was odd and even suspicious that someone would be on that road that late in November... With the frigid temperatures of minus 15 degrees Celsius or 5 degrees Fahrenheit. His intuition suspected the driver of probable poaching in the backwoods, which is unfortunately not uncommon in this area. It wasn't until Keller saw the other police car with Officer Constable Canwell Preet to do from Vanderhoof coming northbound towards them that he flashed his red and blue lights for the truck to pull over. Keller was actually a little surprised that the vehicle did as ordered, obeying. The truck pulled over and stopped on the side of the highway. At this point, Keller performed about 100 roadside stops in his short career. Immediately, he could see Cody had already stuck his driver's license and insurance papers out the window without him even asking. Little did they know, it was far worse than Keller and Sudu could have ever imagined. Unfortunately for Lejabokov, he would soon end up the focal point of two officers with sound instincts. Walking up to the vehicle, Keller questioned Cody, quote, Good evening, sir. Where are you going in such a hurry? Cody replied, quote, I'm just on my way to my grandfather's house. Cody's demeanor was completely calm during this conversation. Some people might even say polite. I, for one, would be extremely nervous that I just killed someone. You know, I'd be shaking in my boots. Yeah, but some people are built a little differently, right? Because this, as we know... As the story goes on, this isn't his first murder. I know, but like to have the police come up on you and you just finished killing someone? That's also uh, having people with uh, like narcissist personalities, like, you know. That they can get away with things or they, yeah, they do feel that, wrong? They feel like they could talk their way out of it and just get away with anything they want, especially if somebody who's already killed before and got away with it. Yeah, okay. As we'll go further in the story, we'll know that this was not his first murder. Okay. I just found that extremely weird. Yeah, no, exactly. I I would be very, very oh, nervous. I, w- I would be scared. I'd be like, probably start crying. I get scared when the cops pull <laughs> me over and did nothing wrong. I know. A cop starts following you and you're doing the speed limit and you're like trying to follow every like every rule of the road, looking yeah, over your shoulder. Exactly. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm nervous just when they pass me. <laughs> I know. And you're, you're like completely innocent. But and, I stare, and I stare <laughs> at my, my rear view just watching them. Yeah. Don't turn around. Don't turn around. Don't turn you around. don't even want to go a kilometer over the speed limit? No. <laughs> nothing to pull me over. <laughs> and then once, once, once you go further, they don't turn around. You're like, I just uh-huh. got away with something and <laughs> yeah. I did nothing wrong. Yep. <laughs> you got away with nothing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So sporting the short, shaggy hairstyle that was popular at the time, looking at the pictures, I would say like the old, you know, the Justin Bieber comb over do that he had. Cody was wearing a black long sleeve sweater with a Carhartt logo across the front black and white plaid shorts, and black and gray skater shoes. He also had blood smeared on his face and chin, which could be seen through his um, stubbles that apparently he had. Okay. Looking at the pictures, not much of stubble. There was blood droplets on his legs and shoes, and there was even small reddish puddle on his floor mat. Keller immediately suspected it was blood. Yeah, this guy's not the most, you know, criminal mastermind here. Like, this is... uh... (laughs) You leave a when you leave a scene, you should clean up a little bit, you know. Like, hasn't he ever seen like a cop show or something? Yeah. Like, nothing. Like this guy reminds me of Officer Doofy off of uh, Scary Movie. Yeah, complete idiot. I made a poopy in my <laughs> pants or something like that. I forgot what the line was, but something like that. 
I did poopy. It was good. <laughs> Have we just seen this not long ago, too? So, there was also a can of Lucky Brand beer behind the driver's seat. Who even drinks that stuff? I personally, I don't. I personally don't know anybody who does. Neither do I. Like I haven't I've, drank that since I think high school. I've tried it once, and I don't want to do that again. Yeah. Well, mine was like you know, in high school, somebody gives you some free beer, and you're like, "Hey, yeah, I'll I'll drink that." Especially have a van. <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm not that stupid. <laughs> Bush parties. Yeah. After finding an open container of alcohol, that gave him probable cause to search Cody's vehicle. Having him step out of the truck, Keller told him he'd be more comfortable in the police cruiser as it was so cold out. In reality, though, you know that he was being placed in the vehicle for safekeeping. Keller performed a routine pat-down before Cody got into the police cruiser, and it uncovered a cell phone with what appeared to be blood on it. Yeah, pretty smart right there. Nope, he's not teaching no uh, murder 101. Keller had questioned Cody about the blood, and he came up with an excuse that he and a friend had poached a deer and clubbed it to death. I don't know who clubs a deer, but, uh, I mean, teach their own, I guess. I don't know how you get close enough to club a deer, but I don't know. Well, it says later, like, we'll find out more about that later. So Cody replied, quote, I'm a redneck, and that's what we do for fun. That's not what rednecks do for fun. <laughs> I know, you know, a lot of rednecks, and they definitely don't club animals to death. So while searching Cody's truck, Constable Keller and Sudu discovered a multi-tool. You know, one of those um, those Leathermans with different blades on it? Yeah, exactly. And they also have, like, you know, wine openers and uh, mini screwdrivers. Exactly. But this one also had, get this, congealed blood on it. Yeah, that's uh, not going good for him. No. So along with this multi-tool that they found, they also found a bloody pipe wrench, which was still covered in snow. They also found blood behind the driver's seat and a monkey-shaped backpack and, of course, a crack pipe. Yeah, who would have their crack pipe out, you know? Everyone needs their crack pipe. There was also alcoholic drinks, mudslides, and white Russians. Yummy. Lauren's phone was also found in there. And finally a black and white wallet containing a child's hospital health card bearing the name Lauren Leslie. Yeah, so it looks like everything's going up against this guy right now. He doesn't have a hope in hell of getting away with this. No. But just wait, it gets worse for him. Officer Keller had already called in a conservation officer with animal tracking skills to do a search of the area at 10.30 p.m. Since Officer Cameron Hill had experience in tracking, he took the opportunity to help out in this case. Initially, Cody was arrested on a charge of illegal hunting after he admitted to poaching a deer with a friend. So I looked it up, and in Canada, individuals being arrested have rights under the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which are being told why they're being detained or arrested, being searched reasonably, the right to remain silent, and the right to retain a lawyer. Exactly. Keller spoke to Cody further, and this is his statement that was used in court. Quote, I told him I was looking for the truth of what was going on. From the things I've learned, people who enjoy killing animals, taking turns clubbing a deer, I said that sometimes they turn out to be serial killers. This seems like an ominous uh, quote right there. Yeah. He, he was like calling him out on it. Like he knew. Yeah. So Cody replied, quote, yeah, I know. I'm trying to change my friends. Which I don't get what that means. Your but friends? Yeah. Okay yeah. there, buddy. Writing a trace on the hospital health ID card came up a missing child. That's when they knew that there was something more than just poaching. At this point, the officers started to have suspicions of what might have happened, but they kept all their thoughts to themselves until they were able to retrieve more evidence. Officer Cameron Hill arrived at the scene, and he started to question Cody himself. Cody had told Hill he and a friend had left Prince George after work and in separate trucks drove to Vanderhoof before turning off Highway 16 and onto a logging road somewhere past Benesti, which is about 45 minutes west of Prince George. Cody said that they came across a mule deer and that it was stunned by the truck's headlights in the middle of the road 
and his friend went and pulled out a rifle and shot him from the window of the vehicle. Mm-hmm. It was brought down with a single shot to the shoulder, but it wasn't dead. So he said that they took turns with a pipe wrench to make the death quicker. Um, you have a gun. Yeah, I know, right? Like, <laughs> just shoot it again if you have a gun. I know, like, oh, it's not dead. So let's go get a pipe wrench and beat this thing to death. Yep. Uh-huh. When asked about the multi-tool with the blood on it, Cody went and said that they cut the animal but refused to give any details about it. In the recording, Cody said, quote, I'm not saying why or what happened. I just did it. He told Hill he put the carcass in the back of his friend's truck and left the scene with intentions of dumping it somewhere else. Cody only gave Hill a name of the friend, and when he asked where he lived, he could not provide the address. All he could do was give him a description of the area in Prince George. Suspicious. Yeah. Ledgebalkoff said he then decided to drive towards Fort St. James, where he grew up, to check out possible hunting areas his grandfather had told him about. He said that's when he seen Keller. Hill can be heard saying, quote, having a really hard time believing. The story was so far-fetched, Hill knew that there was something else. Cody could be heard in the recording. Quote, can I uh, say Cody's still online? You sure can. Okay. I'm telling you the truth. I'm telling you what happened. Like I said before, I just want to go home. You sound like... I wanted to sound that, was, that, that was actually really good. I wanted to sound like that on purpose. Okay. <laughs> Hill described Lechbokov as quite unusual, both physically and mentally. His demeanor was extremely casual, and he seemed bored during their conversation. Keller told Hill his suspicions on Lechbokov. Quote, Before he left, we were speaking of finding this girl's backpack and her being a missing person. So I was preparing him. It was possible he was going to find a person up there. Keller sent Hill back to the road where first he saw Cody come off of. The conservation officer traced the tire tracks of Lechebokov's vehicle half a kilometer up the road just before midnight. In the freshly fallen snow, he found footprints leading to the south end of the gravel pit. With a dimming flashlight in hand, Hill followed the footprints down the ravine to where he seen something. Hill said he struggled further, trying to keep off the track marks as not to interfere with the investigation. He knew that they needed everything that they could to determine what happened. At this point, Hill could see a torso of a body, and it was naked from the waist down. He said he called out, but there was no response. Although he did not get any closer and take the pulse, he had a feeling that the person was dead. After being gone for approximately 20 minutes, Hill said he retreated the 12 to 15 meters back to his vehicle while trying not to contaminate the crime scene. He radioed back to Aaron Keller and told him it was the worst case scenario and an ambulance would not be needed. With Cody still in the police cruiser, Sudhu gave him his charter of rights, but this time it was for a much more serious crime. This time it was for the murder of Lauren Don Leslie. Cody was getting irate at this point, telling Sudhu, I'll say it again. I don't know why I'm fucking in here. Thank you for that. <laughs> His quotes are funny. They are, and I, I really don't want to start swearing. Sudhu repeated to Cody that he had the right to contact a lawyer. Quote, so do you want to call a lawyer or not? I would call my dad. Sudhu questioned, quote, is your dad a lawyer? <laughs> Lechbalkov replied that his father would know one, and he said that he wanted a cigarette out of his truck. Yeah, let's comply to him. Sudhu went on to tell Lechbalkov that anything he said could and would be used as evidence, and if he understood. Quote, Yes, I want to talk to my dad because I did not do this. To drive down the road and find this, it's fucked up. Keller said Cody looked at him, and he said he did not kill the girl. At this point, Keller lost a bit of his emotions and asked him, quote, who the fuck did? For me, Keller was more calm than I would have been. Yeah, yeah, me too, right? Lechebalkov's voice was quickly growing louder and more urgent. At this point, Cody was talking over the officer's voice and swearing. Investigating the murder scene, the remains of Leslie's lifeless body was still warm from dying only a few hours prior. She had been raped, brutally bludgeoned with a heavy object, stabbed- Probably that pipe wrench. Probably. 
stabbed once in the neck. Her jaw was broken, and she suffered defensive wounds on her hands. In addition, she had swollen and broken fingers on her left hand, which appeared to have been stomped on. It was confirmed that she had died from blood loss and blunt force trauma. Her pants were even pulled down to her ankles. My heart breaks for her. Like, to be 15 years old and go through that. It's just... A lot. I'm getting emotional just talking about this. Cody was brought in for questioning at the Vanderhoof RCMP detachment. When they questioned Cody about the body, he told police that he had discovered her like that, and he panicked and left the scene. He told them that he took some of her personal items because he had touched them. The sound quality from the first interview conducted at the Vanderhoof RCMP detachment was muddy. Although in court, the jury was given a written transcript to help guide them along the way. Much of the interview consisted of Constable Greg Yannicki engaged in small talk with Cody about fishing, hockey, his job, and his girlfriend. When Yannicki got to the main topic, he told Cody it looked suspicious seeing someone running away from a site where Leslie's body was found. Cody said he got scared. When Yannicki asked about the blood that he found on him, Cody went and said that he touched Leslie and got blood on his shoes. Cody said he saw the cuts on her throat and she was all bloody and he panicked and left the scene. Yeah, likely story, right? Mm-hmm. However, Yannicki told Cody that his story was ridiculous. It's not possible to beat yourself into unconsciousness. He then said two sets of the injuries caused by a steel wrench and a knife, either one would have been fatal. Yannicki then told Cody to provide the unvarnished, unedited truth. That's when Cody finally admitted he hit Leslie with the wrench once or twice, twice at most. But he denied killing her, saying, She was dead. On the morning of the 29th, Sergeant Paul Dadwall of the BC RCMP interview team was looking on as Cody and his girlfriend of three months, Amy Bull, giving each other a long embrace. Cody told her that he did not kill Leslie. With a tearful and sobbing bull, he continued to go on with the story, asking her for his forgiveness. Cody said, quote, I did not kill her, and I want you to find it in your heart to forgive me, because I do love you. I just want you to believe me. Vol replied, quote, What happened? She went crazy. She started hitting herself on the head. Cody told her he had a wrench in the truck and that Lauren grabbed it and was hitting herself with it. Vol asked, quote, Couldn't you stop her? Cody said, I was in shock. I didn't know what to do. I was scared, okay? I just hope you could find it in your heart to forgive me, because I do love you. I'm sorry, but if I seen someone beating themselves with a wrench, (laughs) I would stop them. I would, you know, dive on them. Yeah, because he's physically stronger than her. Like, obviously, he's played hockey and stuff like that, and she's a 15-year-old girl, right? He could have stopped her easily. She's just this little girl. Yeah, I know. Oh, I have goosebumps. Just stupid. Later, Dadwall also pressed Cody, but he also told him he believed that Cody panicked and did something he normally would not have done. He told Cody, quote, You're not a psycho. You're not a monster. She did something, and you reacted. Then, with Vol still in the room, Dadwall showed Cody a photo of Leslie. He said to Cody, quote, That Cody is not you. Cody continued to deny everything and said he did not hit her with a wrench. Dadwall kept trying to get Cody to admit the truth. Quote, You're not a bad guy. You had a good childhood. You're a normal person. What Dadwall was doing was starting to work because finally Cody admitted he hit Leslie once or twice when she was lying on the ground. He then reluctantly agreed to give a summary of what he said happened, although still continuing to repeat he did not kill Leslie. The authorities searched Cody's Prince George apartment What they uncovered was even more disturbing. Soon, they would uncover who killed the three unsolved deaths within our region in the past year. So now we're going to move on to Cody's victims. His first victim was 35-year-old Jill Stacy Stuchenko. She was a mother of four boys and two girls. She was working as an escort at the Black Orchid Agencies, and she had hoped to become a famous singer one day. Wasn't that across the road from you? I used to live across the street from the Black Orchid Agency, and it was... uh, It was a show sometimes to watch. Yeah, I bet it was. (laughs) Just watching the people go in and out. Sure. Yeah. 
I never went in. Uh-huh. <laughs> Tell me more. Yeah. On October 9th, 2009, all that was taken away from her after she was lured into Cody's residence. At the time, Cody was living in his basement suite on 1500 block of Kearney Street while his female friends lived upstairs. That's like right at the heart of uh, Prince George, pretty much. Yeah, really? Yeah. Yeah. I used to live uh, close to that area. Did you? Yeah, I grew up on uh, a few streets down, down. Oh, that's right. During this time, his roommates were off having Thanksgiving dinner with their families. For those who don't know, Canadians celebrate Thanksgiving dinner on the second Monday of October. Mm-hmm. Yummy. While we were at home enjoying our turkey and ham and stuff like that, mm-hmm. whatever you eat for uh, Thanksgiving, he and, uh, you know, enjoying our time with our family, Jill was being murdered. Isn't that a sad thought? Yeah. In court, Cody mentioned that there were other people involved in the murder, and he labeled them as Excellent. a drug dealer and two accomplices, which were X, Y, and Z. Right. Cody said that he was having a party in his basement suite. Both alcohol and cocaine were in use. Of course. Drug dealers X and Y said that Jill owed them money and she was going to die. X proceeded to use a pipe wrench and hit her with it, which is what killed her. Cody then drove down 15th Avenue to get rid of her clothes in a dumpster. Meanwhile, X and Y took away the body. Cody later claims that this was also the same scenario for the other victims that he gets accused of murdering. Jill wasn't reported missing until October 22nd, and just four days later, on October 26th, her body was found by a hiker buried in a shallow gravel pit near the intersection of Otway Road and Ospeka Boulevard in Prince George. So my question, why did it take from the 9th to the 22nd to report her missing? She was a mother of six, after all. Like, is this normal behavior for people like this? Yeah, so when you're in the drug scene, so it's not uncommon for people to go missing for days at a time, even weeks, because once you fall down that rabbit hole of drugs and stuff, mm-hmm. it's 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 hard to come out of, right? I could see that. I could see, like, um, you forgetting your loved ones and everything, and, like, you're just, you're kind of self-absorbed in a sense. Yeah, this probably hasn't. You just has need a- to feed your, your drug addiction. Yeah, this probably hasn't happened. This probably happened more than once. Yeah. Jill's body was found in a shallow depression and covered in gravel that a forensic anthropologist carefully brushed away. She had suffered a series of massive blunt force blows to the back of the right side of her head and to her face. She had scalp lacerations, skull fractures, and cerebral contusions. There were multiple bruises from similar blows to her forehead, forearms, and upper arms, as well as both her knees. So get this, apparently the amount of blood loss was so extreme that the pathologist had trouble obtaining a sample during her autopsy. That's that's pretty extreme. Yeah, exactly. The forensic DNA analysis took samples from her right-hand fingernail, swabs from both her vagina and anus, as well as samples taken from her tampon located within her vagina. With all this, the DNA profile of an unknown male had been developed. Now we move to Cody's second victim. She is Natasha Lynn Montgomery. She's a 23-year-old mother of two from Quinnell which is about an hour south of Prince George. Yeah, about an hour. So it's maybe, another, maybe just over, yeah. It's another city involved in this. Uh, in this. Mm-hmm. So now we got, to, what, four cities involved here? Yeah. Natasha was believed to be killed between August 31st and early September 1st of 2010, when a friend dropped her off at a fast gas on 20th Avenue and Queensway, and which is a known spot for prostitution in Prince George. Yeah, I've seen them walking the streets. This happened just a few weeks after she was released from the Prince George Correctional Center on August 19th of 2010, which in fact is my birthday. It is. When she disappeared, her family was immediately worried as she was known to live a high-risk lifestyle and did not try to contact her two children. Unfortunately, Natasha's body has never been found. I can't imagine what Luann Montgomery, Natasha's mom, and her two children went through not knowing where she is. That would destroy me as a parent for the rest of my life. Yeah, and it sucks because there's not many details about her, which I wish I could do say more about her, but we don't have much here. Although there is quite a bit of evidence coming up. Yeah, which, but I wish it was, but wish I would have found her body. Uh, yeah, I wish for everyone else's sake that eventually her body is found and they have some closure. I think they need closure. Yeah, exactly. So now we're going to move on to Cody's third victim. She's 35-year-old Cynthia Frances Ma and she was last seen on September 10th, 2010. Cynthia was then reported missing on September 23rd. On the night of October 8th, 2010, Corporal Kent McNeil and a partner were patrolling areas of the city where prostitutes and johns congregated. In search of tips that could help them locate two missing women, one of them was Cynthia Frances Ma. 
McNeil told the court that people would take their dates to Elsie Gun Park and went to the location of Highway 16 East across from the Prince George Regional Correctional Center, and they were in an unmarked sport utility vehicle. Exactly. After driving along into LC Gun as far as the parking lot, they turned around and drove up the ATV trail. At the start, they noticed a very strong rotting smell, but dismissed it because there was some garbage laying around on the ground. Mm. But after a two-hour process, searching other areas around the park, they returned to the site and drove up the trail, into some long grass leading into a wooded area. I could just imagine coming up upon this. Yeah, no doubt. There, they got out of their vehicle and followed the smell for about 10 meters before coming across what turned out to be Ma's body. Shortly after 2 a.m. on October 9, 2010, they quickly determined she was dead, backed out of the scene, and called in the Serious Crimes Unit. What is a Serious Crimes Unit? It's like... Uh, the homicide. The homicide detective? Pretty much, yeah. Oh, okay. Cynthia had been left propped up against a tree. Her pants and underwear were pulled down to her ankles. She was in an advanced stage of decomp. Forensic entomologist Gail Anderson determined that Cynthia was most likely there in Elsie Gun Park for about three weeks or more by using the samples of blowfly larvae collected from Ma's body. Cynthia had been raped, bludgeoned, and stabbed. She had suffered massive blood force trauma to her head and face, they say about 16 blows in all. Her autopsy had showed penetrating wounds to her right chest and neck area, in addition to more fractures to her wrist and hands. Cynthia's clothing was taken at the autopsy just a few days after she was found, and it showed a series of irregular holes on three layers of clothing. Moreover, three holes on the upper right shoulder of her fleece jacket lined up with those on her dress shirt and undershirt. Yeah. Cody wasn't even on anyone's radar for three months, and I believe that if he wasn't caught on Leslie's murder, he probably would have gotten away with it. Oh yeah, for sure. He This guy was not going to stop. No, he was Until he got caught. Like He was, he was he, ramping up every time. Yeah. It was getting worse and worse. Like, now it wasn't even in his apartment anymore. With Lauren, it was out in the woods. Yeah, exactly. Over the course of his arrest and five interviews that followed, Cody changed his story. When Cody was told that a body was found at the scene when he was arrested for Lauren's murder, Cody admitted that he found a body but maintained he never knew Leslie. During the search of Cody's apartment and his previous basement suite after his arrest linked him to three murders besides Lauren. In the basement suite on Kearney Street, Jill Stutenko's DNA was found on bloodstains on the carpet. When they went and searched his apartment, they also had found her blood on his couch. Ma's DNA was also found on a sweater and a sock. Now get this where they found it. Where? Cody's truck. Huh. This investigation also uncovered Cynthia's DNA on a pair of running shoes and a picaroon that stood against the bedroom wall next to Cody's bed. A picaroon is something that resembles a pickaxe tool. Okay, I've never heard of it. Neither have I. I do know of a pickaxe, though. Yeah, me too. To obtain a DNA profile for Natasha, since her body was never found, her parents provided a toothbrush of hers. Montgomery's DNA was found in 32 blood samples taken from Cody's apartment, including the kitchen, dining room, living room, and hallway. Blood was also found on bed sheets, hoodie, box spring matches, an axe, and the carpet. Her DNA was even found on the shorts that Cody was wearing the day he was arrested for Lauren's murder. So it almost seems like he has like a, a Dexter's like kill suit, you know? <laughs> oh, yes. Yes. Oh, we've got to finish watching Dexter. Yeah. So there were nine swabs of Montgomery's blood taken from an axe that they had found in a linen closet. Jason Solinsky, who conducted the DNA analysts of the RCMP Forensic Laboratory in Edmonton, Alberta, had complete confidence that the DNA from the toothbrush and the samples taken from the apartment was 6.4 billion to one and was enough evidence to tie Cody to her murder. Well, 6.4 billion, I don't think you get much more evidence more than that, oh, right? Oh, heck no. On June 2nd, 2014, the trial began after being delayed a few times in Prince George, which was expected to only last several months. The judge, BC Supreme Court Justice Glenn Parrott, and 12 jurors, 8 men, and 4 women, heard testimony from 93 Crown Witnesses and the defendant, Cody Allen Legibokov. The first people to take the stand were the parents of Natasha Montgomery, Todd Eason, and Luann Montgomery. 
They talked about how Natasha was trying to enroll in a drug program and she was trying to turn her life around. Luann Montgomery tearfully explained, quote, Natasha said to me she had a drug problem and she needed help when she got out. She wanted us to be here when she got out, but she was let out when there was nobody around to help her. It was unfortunate her parents were living in Quinnell when Montgomery was released. It was reported that Cody was addicted to cocaine and had used all these women to acquire it. All but Lauren were invited to his home where they were attacked. Each of these murders had been sexually motivated, and in each case, the victim had been severely beaten and bludgeoned with a blunt object. Given the evidence, Lejabalkov gave no facial expression, but a rash appeared to creep up the back of his neck as the results were presented in court. This passage we are going to read is found in the court transcript on August 26, 2014. We'd like to put a warning out there because it's pretty disturbing. I will play the prosecutor, and Brad, could you play Cody? Uh, of course I can. Okay, awesome. Okay, uh, so what did you do? I'd seen the seen the pipe wrench there, and uh, I had grabbed the pipe wrench, and I hit her with it. Why? It was out of anger, frustration, panic. Didn't really know what to do. That's generally why it, why that happened. What do you mean you hit her? Where did you hit her? I hit her on the head. How many times? I'm going to say a few times, a couple times, a few times. Don't really know uh, an exact number, but... You say out of anger. What? What were you angry about? Well, the fact that this happened, I wasn't expecting any of this to happen. And I was pissed off, really, that it came to this and that this happened. Okay, so you hit her... Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. How many times do you think you hit her? Or did you hit her? Two, maybe... Maybe more. I'm not, I'm not 100% sure. Did she move after that? No. Lejibalkov testified during the trial that he was involved in three of the deaths, but he claimed he did not commit the killing. A drug dealer and two accomplices, whom he would name only as XYZ, were the actual murderers. Which we discussed earlier. We did. He was just an innocent bystander, despite blood being found on his person and in his home. When pressed to name the alleged real killers, he couldn't produce a name. He claimed he did not want to go to prison as a rat. He pleaded guilty to four counts of second-degree murder in B.C. Supreme Court, testifying he was present at the deaths of the three women and the teenage girl, but that he was adamant that he did not commit the murders. Lejbokov also claimed that Leslie wasn't murdered and that she had killed herself, assuring that they had consensual sex. He even tried to persuade the jury that she used a pipe wrench and the utility tool to bash herself across the head before stabbing herself in the neck. Like, are you kidding me? Yeah, I know, right? The pathologist refuted this ludicrous claim by stating that the heavy blows to the head would have rendered her unable to perform the other injuries. All the murders were committed during the course of sexual assaults, and thus found Cody Lejabalkov a sex offender. He was duly registered as such for life. When they told him this, Lejabalkov shouted, I'm not a sex offender. Judge Glenn Parrott quoted, He lacks any shred of empathy or remorse. He should never be allowed to walk among us again. Okay, so our cat just joined us on our podcast. So if you hear some purring, it would be Lucy. Hi, Lucy. Brendan Fitzpatrick, who was a superintendent in charge of operations for the RCMP E-Division Major Crime, left the force in 2017, but says that the moment the DNA linked Lejibalkov to the earlier murders until he retired, there were persistent ongoing efforts to convince him to give up the location of Montgomery's remains. Still to this day, it is unknown where she is. The families had impact statements that we'd like to go over. Let's remember that these beautiful women, for who they are, each of them have stories beyond drugs and prostitution. They were far more than that. In the letter to the court, Stuchenko's 15-year-old daughter, Michelle Mitchell, said that she cries herself to sleep at night and must deal with the depression and anxiety since her mother's death. Quote, I barely talk to anyone. I barely communicate. A shaking and tearful Luana Montgomery, Natasha's mom, 
described her daughter as, quote, beautiful person inside and out. She always had a huge smile. When she was in a room, everyone knew she was there. She had a huge bubbly personality. She was friendly to everyone and always found a way to make you feel good. Her daughter grew up in a nurturing home and was raised by a loving family. Luann said, quote, I can't let things go. I want her back so bad. I would go to Google Earth and try to figure out where to look. It just consumes me. Luann. That's extremely sad. Oh, it is so sad. It just makes your heart just, oh. Especially knowing that we live in this area and she could be anywhere around here. She could. I, and I wish I could just walk up and find her body, you know, or find her remains just to give them, you Closure. know. Yeah. They need that. They deserve that. Yep. To this day, Luann still asks the public to keep an eye out for her daughter's remains. Doug Leslie, Lauren's dad, opted to have his impact statement read by someone else. He said that there are parts that I did not feel that I could read. Everybody that knows Lauren know her as a special child and a special adolescent. Her compassion for everybody wasn't real. The loss that everyone had when Lauren was taken away from us, I felt the big impact of me not being able to be there for her. And of course, we can't be everywhere at once. That was a real big impact on me. Having him murder my daughter and me not being able to help. Yeah, that just makes me think, you know, when something is going wrong in your life, like something that traumatic. Yeah. You're just thinking, I just want my mom. I just want my dad, you know? Exactly. Just imagine what was going through her her mind at that time, you know, while she was being attacked. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's really hard to, to fathom. Uh, Doug also said that he knows Lejabokov will spend the rest of his life in jail. He quoted in saying, In the meantime, we know where Lauren is and she's still working wonders, he said. I feel her every day. We have to just go down the road of positivity and try to, try to hope to make sure that this doesn't happen to anybody else. Life is precious and when it is lost at a tender age, there isn't any closure. There's thought of, like I said, hoping it won't happen to anybody else. Mm-hmm. The family had started um, a Lauren Don Leslie Foundation, and they're working at bringing programs of youth empowerment to communities that don't have money for them. If you want more information about this, you can contact the Lauren Don Leslie Foundation on Facebook. Judy Moss stepped onto the podium to tell her sister's story. Quote, Against all odds, graduated from the private school, Cindy also decided that she was going on a school trip to China with the Christian Academy to deliver Bibles, which opened up her world to other types of struggles. Born with a disability and was therefore most vulnerable to those that prey on such people. She was an innocent. She had dreams and aspirations for her life. However, she fell victim to the drug when her cousin told her to try something that would make her feel good. She believed that everybody had everybody's best interest in heart. Because she did, she was trusting. She was not happy about where her life was at and wanted to change it so desperately. Judy Ma said, at one point, a text message from her was sent to my youngest daughter, apologizing that she wasn't the auntie that she wanted to be. Criminals and murderers often target sex trade workers because they believe they'll not be missed. They kind of think that they're like a two-bit person, not, not worth anything. Yeah, and they, they believe that they won't be noticed until long after the crime is committed. This is an unfortunate fact. One of the main reasons why the infamous pig farmer, Robert Willie Picton, was able to kill for so long. Yeah, that's not a story that we are ever going to cover, though. Just so everyone knows, don't even ask, since I have a friend who was one of those girls. And uh, yeah, we're just not going to talk about it. It just goes to show you... Anybody, no matter who they are, could be taken away from you. Cody Allen Lejabalkov's girlfriend at the time, Amy Vole, testified during the trial. She and Cody were co-workers at the local auto dealership and had known each other since the summer of that year. Amy Vole quoted, Mr. Lejabalkov disappeared for a few weeks before Miss Leslie's murder. He didn't tell anyone where he went. He just disappeared. Once together... Vole said that she would stay overnight at Cody's 1400-block Liard Drive apartment three or four times a week. She noticed a bloody handprint on the wall near the apartment front door, a bloodstain on the curtains in the living room, and the carpet at the end of the hallway. 
She questioned Cody, quote, I was told that it was his own blood, that he cut his foot one night and came home intoxicated and made a mess. Recounting the day up until Lauren's death, Vol said both had worked that day, with Legibolkov's work day ending sooner than hers. As soon as her day finished, she took the short drive to Cody's apartment, where they watched TV while sitting on the couch. It's kind of weird having to sit on the couch watching TV, knowing that somebody's probably murdered on that couch because of the bloodstains. I know, like, wouldn't he be, like, uncomfortable? I, I would be. Like, is she going to question all this blood still? Yeah. Like, I would be, like, provoking you, like... Not provoking, that's a bad word. I would be like nagging at you, like, what is this? And if you kept saying, well, my nosebleed or whatever, you know, that's a lot of blood. Yeah. I would be skeptical, I guess you'd say. So while watching TV, he began to fall asleep on her lap. So she decided to go home at 6.30 p.m. Crown prosecution alleged Cody drove out to Vanderhoof to meet up in person with Lauren Don Leslie. He's one of those people that, would never, ever stop. He would just always ramp up and ramp up. And mm-hmm. who knows how long it would have gone for. Yeah. I completely agree with you 100%. He was in his frenzy stage, I think. He started moving to his frenzy state where he just keeps killing and killing because he keeps getting away with it. It's like a thrill. Yep. With Cody wearing an oversized shirt and his head shaved bald, he stared blankly ahead. The jury's finding a first-degree murder on all four counts – drew gasps of joy and quickly followed by tears of relief from the families and friends of Cody's victims early September 11th, 2014 at 6 p.m. And on the 16th, he was sentenced to life in prison with no parole for 25 years. He would not be eligible for parole until 2039. Yeah, unfortunately for Canada... Our life sentence is 25 years. Uh, that's the max you get, mm-hmm. unless there's certain cases that may go further. But, I mean, life in prison is pretty much 25 years. Yeah. But usually you can apply for parole, I think, was it half? 15, I think. Yeah. I'll, you are right, 15. The eight-man, four-woman jury reached its verdict following about a day and a half of deliberation. Cody, 24 at the time, showed no emotion that he had done throughout most of his three-and-a-half-month trial. His lawyer, Jim Heller, had urged the jury to find his client guilty of second-degree murder. And the whole thing is crazy to me that he's only 24 years old this time. Like, 24 years old, you, don't, you haven't gone through life yet. Like, when I was at 24 years old, I was still young and dumb and full of... Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I already had one child and... Pregnant with the next one? Yeah. Was that pregnant? The Supreme Court Justice Glenn Parrott quoted, I am aware of comments being made to the fact that there is no need to embark on any formal inquiry into missing and murdered women, that policing is a solution to this problem. With the greatest of respect to those of different views, we should all be eternally grateful to the very young and inexperienced police officer whose instincts were sound and on the money. Oh, yeah, for sure. Like, I totally agree with that because there's a lot of times where police officers will just... Uh, look away. Look away or, you know, believe it's not their job, especially, you know, like, what is it, 9.30, 10.30 at night or something like that, mm, just exactly. driving down the, the road. Like, just to have and him... And cold, you know, they're like, oh, let's just say I didn't oh, see this guy's Oh, this guy's a rock star in my eyes. Oh, God, yeah, give the guy a raise. Unfortunately for Canada, have you heard of the faint hope? clause nope so the faint hope clause provides a gradual structured release opportunity for those lifers who made all the necessary efforts to change their lives and can safely reintegrate into society as law-abiding productive citizens so that means that's the 15 years right there i just didn't know what it was called yeah okay so yeah that's why it was 15 years and we get a chance to get out Exactly. But I didn't know that that's what they called that. So, yeah. Good to know. Yes. So, Cody went and applied for this faint hope clause. And any criminal after December 2nd, 2011 could apply for it. But in Cody's case, it was repealed in 2011 for cases involving serial murders. So, Cody could not apply. That's awesome. Yeah. Cody will remain in prison until he's 45 years old. Which is still pretty freaking young. I know. Like in reality, like some people are starting their criminal, you know, offenses at yeah. that age. Well, at forty-five, you can still live a full life. I know. 
you know? Hopefully something changes. I hope. In February 2015, though, they actually had a change of venue. And he went from maximum prison at the Kent Institute. Yeah, down near Vancouver. Yeah, I think it's in uh, Agassiz. Yeah, some of that. And was moved over to a medium security prison in Ontario at uh, Warkworth or something like that. Warkworth Institution, yeah. That's, yeah. So now he has um, less restrictions. Which sucks. Yeah. As far as I'm concerned, you know, if you're going to have less restrictions, at least force him to give up the name or not the name, but force him to, to give, give up, up the location, location of where Natasha's body is. Exactly. You know, don't just give him stuff. Make him earn that. Yeah. You know, pay his dues. Have remorse. Yep. So, you know, that just kind of irks me right there. And also, it was revealed that only two of the four families were notified about this transfer. Yeah, that's uh, that's all right. No, I think all the families should have been notified before they actually transferred him over into Ontario. So I think that we should um, actually put out a warning to the parents and social media users. You know, because anybody could act like anybody on social media. So there's potential risks online for relationships yeah just be careful what your kids are doing like um the games they're playing and stuff like that like yeah be involved in their lives yeah exactly because you don't know who they're talking to like we have a 12 year old son who spends a lot of time online so and he's not allowed to say anything about his name nothing no or you know where he lives or anything like that so just keep it just keep an eye of what they're doing online and just make sure that uh this doesn't happen again exactly so, on a scale, on the 1 to 10, how do you rate oh. Cody Lejbakov? This was really hard, you know. I want to give him a 10, of course. But I know that there are far worse people in the world. You know, people who cut up bodies, rape them, killing babies. Um, people that don't even have a chance to defend themselves or show... You know, it shows that they're cowards. So, unfortunately, I'm giving it a six. Okay. I. It doesn't mean I agree with what he did. By far, I do not. I think that what he did is disgusting. You know, and he should stay in prison for the rest of his life for what he's done. But on that scale, I'm going to give a six. That That's uh, fair. What would you do? I'd probably go around the same. Like, I think that he is bad, but I think there's a lot more worse out there. And we're going to probably get into that. But, I mean, he's everyone is bad, uh, you know, but. Well, yeah, that's the thing. They're all going to be bad. It's just like, what is the worst of the worst? Yeah, exactly. I'll I'll put him around a six, too. Okay. So that concludes the case of Cody Lajabakov. I would like to make a special shout out to Officer Aaron Keller mm-hmm. with his sound instincts to arrest this monster. And because yeah. who knows how many people he would have killed exactly. before he got caught. Exactly. Amen. Yes. So, Thank you, Aaron so I'm Keller. I'm glad he got caught before he did any more because you know that there's probably going to be a lot more. Yeah. We need more people like Aaron Keller on the force. Exactly. So, anyways, if you'd like to rate, you know, Cody on the heinous level from one to 10 and let us know why you think that number suits him, let us know. You can email us to worldstreetcrime at hotmail.com. And we're also starting an Instagram account as well, which we haven't done yet. No, we have the Instagram. Oh, have we? Yeah. Okay. We have Instagram. And Facebook is set up. Okay. I guess you can find those stuff probably at worldstreetcrime. Exactly. I guess. I don't know. (laughs) Is that right? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I have no idea. And I would... Love to give a shout out to my daughter, my talented daughter, who did the design for our cover, Samantha, or as everyone calls her, Sam. Thanks, Sam. Thank you, Sam. We appreciate it. Yeah. So that's it for us at World's True Crime. Goodbye, everyone. I don't know how we're going to end it.
So just remember, everybody, the world's not always what it seems. Bye. Bye.